the pandemic has driven a whole series of unprecedented changes. These really are strange times. And what, regrettably, we've seen on the part of officialdom is an authoritarian tendency and what I regret to say on the part of our citizens uh, we've seen is, a, in my view, a readiness to take too much on trust from government. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. A reminder to all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, there is a stack to talk about. As always, we're going to discuss the massive protests that have been taking place in Melbourne and what it means for the future of Australia. Uh, we'll be talking about religious freedom, and we've got some excellent questions from our listeners that I'm very much looking forward uh, to getting your response to. Uh, to begin with, Tony, I mentioned the significant protests in Melbourne this past Saturday. Something like 70 or 80,000 people, about an MCG's worth of people, were in the city to protest the Andrews government and specifically uh, the new pandemic legislation uh, that is currently being debated in the upper house in Victoria, which we will um, discuss in a moment. Um, I know that the majority of our listeners are not in Melbourne and they're not in Victoria, but this is a, a really big issue that every Australian needs to know about. Um, to begin with, Tony, before we get into some of the, the specifics, I just wanted to get your assessment as, as someone who's uh, got a bit of a distance from the specific situation in Melbourne and Victoria. What's your assessment of, of what's happening in Victoria at the moment? Plainly, Dan, Melbourne is the world's most locked down city. And there's been a real authoritarian tendency in the approach of the current Victorian government to handling the pandemic. I have uh, enormous concerns about the proposed new emergency legislation that uh, will uh, presumably uh, be the basis on which the Andrews government wishes to uh, do its ongoing pandemic management. Uh, having been in the executive government myself, I understand that there are lots of decisions that governments have to make, ministers have to make, heads of government have to make. But if we're talking about rules, the rules in a democracy, in a parliamentary democracy such as ours, really have to be referred to the parliament. Laws have to be referred to the parliament and regulations made under the laws typically are disallowable instruments which go before the parliament and the parliament then has a certain time, uh, if it wishes, uh, to consider them and to vote on them and, if necessary, 
vote them down. My understanding of the current Andrews government legislation is that it completely removes uh, any requirement to give Parliament a say on the rules that henceforth under this bill, if it's passed, will be made by the Health Minister. So uh, as the legislation currently stands, as the proposed legislation currently stands, the Premier can make a declaration of a pandemic and once that declaration has been made, the health, health Minister will be able to make any order that is reasonably necessary to protect public health and there is no further reference to the Parliament. Now, I, I think this is absolutely extraordinary and unprecedented. I hope that the upper house crossbench will uh, rethink their view on this. I gather there are some suggestions in the media today for a few changes, but my reading of the media reports is that the changes as currently mooted are more window dressing because they don't involve the need for any of the rules made by the health minister under these uh, pandemic circumstances to go before the parliament for the parliament to scrutinise them and perhaps disallow them. And parliamentary scrutiny and parliamentary sovereignty over the rules under which we live, I think is absolutely critical in any respectable parliamentary democracy. And my God, that's what we've got to stay. And we should never allow the stresses and strains of this pandemic uh, to water down our fundamental freedoms and our fundamentally democratic way of life and our fundamentally democratic institutions. Well, just to build on that, Tony, we released some research earlier this week at the Institute of Public Affairs, and uh, there were three key findings of our, our research with regards to this bill. The first is that it would allow the Premier to impose indefinite lockdowns, even if there are no cases of a virus anywhere in Australia. Uh, it would allow for people to be imprisoned without a trial and people could be arrested on the basis of their what's called attributes, things like their political beliefs, their religion, their ethnicity, and I would add in all likelihood their vaccination status, um, for example. Uh, I haven't come across any legislation of this nature anywhere in Australia. Have you in your experience, Tony? Well, none of us have lived through a pandemic before, <laughs> but, uh, but as we've been discussing on these podcasts, Dan, um, the pandemic has driven a whole series of unprecedented changes, whether it be unprecedented peacetime spending, whether it be absolutely unprecedented restrictions on daily life. So these really are strange times. And what, regrettably, we've seen on the part of officialdom is uh, an authoritarian tendency and what I regret to say on the part of our citizens uh, we've seen is, a, is, is in, in my view, a readiness to take too much on trust from government. I think government deserves to be questioned. Government deserves to be scrutinised and government should have to provide explanations and answers in a way that, generally speaking, it hasn't uh, over the last 18 months. So, uh, 
So I think this is absolutely unprecedented. I think it's a, a serious blight on our democracy. And if the Andrews legislation goes through the parliament this week or in the next few weeks, uh, I think we need to keep uh, extreme vigilance on what's done under the legislation. And if, as I suspect, the authoritarian tendencies of the Victorian government continue under this even more draconian legislation, well, I hope that there's an appropriate response at the ballot box because, again, Dan, as we've been discussing in the course of these podcasts, in the end, the real sanction on bad government is electoral defeat. And I think this has been a completely over-the-top government in Victoria. I think all of our state governments, New South Wales has been the best, but I think all of our state governments uh, have, uh, have been too ready uh, to exercise uh, uh, drastic restrictions over the course of this pandemic. The last thing I would like to see is uh, the health authoritarianism of the past 18 months continue and what we should never want anywhere is the kind of health police state which I think Victoria could well become if this legislation passes. Yeah, absolutely. And we have seen, as I mentioned with the protests, uh, a lot of pushback by the average average person here. And I've never seen protests this big amongst people that are not ideological. You know, these, these are people across the political spectrum. Um, and what, what I'm really interested in getting your view on, Tony, is... I've always been a bit of a skeptic of protests. I've often thought that they turn, you know, turn the regular person, the average person away from your course because they can become a bit excessive and a bit extreme. And there's always uh, colorful characters that attend these protests. Um, I, I get the sense that they have helped shift the debate in Victoria though, I have to say, um, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm just interested in your perspective on protests in, in general. Do they, uh, do they serve their purpose of, of, raising the profile of certain issues or do they do more harm than good? I think the right to protest is very important and I think that people do take protests seriously. I think we are a, a more fragmented and a more polarised society today than at any time in our recent history and I think that there are a lot of things in this legislation in the way governments and corporations are conducting themselves right now in terms of vaccination mandates, which are going to exacerbate that. And the sooner we can put all this behind us, the sooner we can go back to a normal life where uh, we're not being dictated to on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis by government, and we're not being told um, what... Uh, uh, what we have to do with our bodies, so to speak. I just think the better for everyone. I completely agree with that, Tony. And from my perspective, being in Melbourne, they they certainly are not rabid right-wingers. For example, one of the speeches started with a welcome to country. Uh, and that's not something you would necessarily see at a, you know, a highly conservative uh, sort of protest. These are you know people that have lost their jobs, small business owners, mums and dads, just people that have been uh, their lives have been just torn apart over the last couple of years that now have and an again, opportunity. Again, Dan, um, 
the unvaccinated are not a threat to the vaccinated. The unvaccinated are really only a danger to themselves. Well, what, that's, a, that's a good point. Why the original idea under the National Cabinet Plan was once we get to 80%, basically almost all of the restrictions are going to be lifted on vaccinated and unvaccinated, yet now we're talking about 90%, and that's not just for 16+, plus; that's for 12+, plus in terms of age. Uh, the goalposts, to me, just keep shifting and shifting. Uh, in Victoria, they're talking about booster shots. You know, you're not going to be fully vaccinated now unless you've had three shots rather than two shots. Um, do you think these goalposts are ever going to stop being shifted? Is this just going to drag on and on and on? Again, Dan, I think what we've got to do is at some point, I'm disappointed we haven't got there already, but at some early point, we're going to have to declare victory. Say uh, this particular pandemic has been beaten. Uh, we now go back to normal life. And there does seem to be a reluctance on the part of officialdom to do that. And, and I worry that too many people in authority have rather enjoyed having the spotlight, the attention and the power uh, that they have never before had. Look, I'd like to change gears now and uh, there's been a couple of issues bubbling beneath the surface um, throughout COVID that are now coming to the fore on the uh, on, on the national stage, one of which has been climate change and net zero, which you and I have discussed over the past few weeks. And another is religious freedom, which is uh, a very significant issue. Um, the context for this is uh, Scott Morrison promised to introduce a new Religious Discrimination Act um, after a review was undertaken by Philip Ruddick in 2018. Now, that promise was to do that in this term of government. So basically, that means that something will have to happen uh, essentially in the next fortnight, because in all likelihood, uh, the final fortnight of sitting uh, of this parliament, which commences next Monday, could be the last uh, of this government if there is an election to be held early next year. There are a lot of facets to religious freedom in Australia and what governments should or should not do. Um, I want to get into that in a moment, but to begin with, Tony, could I get your general assessment of some of the principles uh, that should underpin religious freedom in Australia? Well, essentially, in an English system, you should be free to do whatever is not expressly prohibited, and you should be free to live a life of faith or a faithless life, whatever, um, to the extent that it's not expressly prohibited by law. Uh, what we've seen in recent times is the use of laws which were originally supposed to be a shield, anti-discrimination laws that were supposed to be a shield against uh, unfair and unjust discrimination uh, used as a sword uh, to discriminate against uh, people. And, and rather than uh, push new anti-discrimination laws, I'd be inclined to repeal some of the old ones. That would be my inclination. Mm. Uh, so, so, look, obviously at the heart of our society are freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, the freedom to vote for whoever you want, uh, in, in elections, the freedom of anyone who wants uh, to run, to run in elections. These are all absolutely fundamental. Now, now I absolutely understand why back in the day all of these anti-discrimination laws 
were passed. And I'm not saying there wasn't a need for them, but the danger is that laws that were passed as a shield could ultimately become a sword. And if there is a danger that laws that were supposed to be shields have become swords, well, then I think we we pull back on the law as opposed to add to it. And, and so that's, that's my general instinct. Now, uh, I know the government made a commitment uh, at the last election to pass religious freedom laws in this term of parliament. And obviously, governments should do what they say they're going to do. But I certainly believe in religious freedom. I'm not sure that new laws are the best way to deliver it. Uh, back in the day, for instance, Daniel, when I was the employment minister and there was a suggestion from one of the then human rights commissioners that it was in breach of uh, the spirit, if not the letter of human rights legislation back then uh, for religious job network agencies to have a preferential hiring policy. Um, as the relevant minister, I just came out and said, this is completely nonsense. This is complete nonsense. And uh, I absolutely, categorically and completely repudiated the position of that particular human rights commissioner, and we heard no more. So uh, sometimes I think the best response to particular problems is for people in authority to very clearly state their position and make it absolutely crystal clear what they think is the right way of proceeding rather than constantly thinking whenever there's a problem that we've got to pass a new law. That's an interesting perspective, Tony, because that's one of the issues that is coming up with this bill in terms of, um, I guess, the balance, if you like, between freedom of association and freedom of religion. So the freedom of, a, you know, in this case of a business to hire and fire people based on, you know, whatever characteristics they choose and the the ability of, of people to access different employment opportunities. And one of the related issues I wanted to talk with you about is, is the issue of what happened to Israel Falau and the inclusion of what is a being called the Falau clause in, in the proposed legislation that would essentially make it illegal for an employer to sack somebody on the basis of their religious beliefs. So just as a reminder to our listeners, Israel Falau was sacked by Rugby Australia in 2019 for quoting passages from the Bible on his social media accounts that uh, offended some people in our community and ultimately Rugby Australia terminated his his contract, a fallout clause would essentially make that illegal. Um, what's your assessment? Is that is that a good idea? Is that giving too much power to to government and legislation? Look, Daniel, that's a very good question. Again, there are, there are many things that are better handled uh, through the common sense of reasonable people rather than through legislation. There are many things that are better handled uh, informally than through processes of law. So I don't think he should have been sacked, but whether we need more law in this area is, I think, an open question. Do you think we've become a bit less tolerant as a society towards people of religious views and, and in particular Christians? I mean, uh, I, I think there's, there's, no, there's absolutely no doubt that many things that were, much, that were once regarded as mainstream or orthodox are now, are, are now going to be jumped on uh, by the outrage industry, if I may use that term. 
I think there are lots and lots of things which would have been completely uh, completely accepted or at least be, been regarded as well within uh, the bounds of a public discussion, which are now uh, pretty much unsayable. I mean, this, for instance, it's 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 almost unsayable these days uh, to question um, the climate change orthodoxy. Now, I'm more than happy to question the climate change orthodoxy myself, but I'm in the happy position uh, of being a retired member of parliament on a parliamentary pension. Um, no one can threaten my livelihood. Uh, no one can take away the fact that I was the 28th Prime Minister of the country. But if I was someone who was still move up some kind of corporate ladder or try to advance in public life, uh, there would be all sorts of things that would be pretty hard to say. And I guess one of the good things about being a retired politician on a parliamentary pension is that you can perhaps be a little bit braver uh, than other people in terms of speaking your mind and stating uh, things that you believe to be true which these days are ferociously resisted by the politically correct orthodoxy. And another thing, Tony, is you can come on excellent podcasts like this <laughs> and you can respond to some excellent listener questions. Um, so we've got a couple of great listener questions uh, lined up and I'm very much looking forward to getting your response to those questions. Before I get to them, I just wanted to let our listeners know about a new a journal of essays that we've released at the Institute of uh, Public Affairs. It's called Essays for Australia. Uh, we've just released volume one uh, of those essays. There's a wonderful contribution uh, from Tony Abbott called Maintaining Our Perspective. Uh, we've got other contributions from Lorraine Finlay, from Fred Paul, from Gigi Foster, from Adam Crichton and many others. Uh, I would encourage anyone interested to go to our website, ipa.org.au slash essays and uh, that'll have information of how you can get your hands um, on a copy. Um, so with that, Tony, I just wanted to turn to our listener questions today. And the first one here. Hi, Tony. As a resident of Victoria, Stan, your podcast with Daniel is one of the highlights of my week. I hope that at the next election, that not only do we have a change of government, but also that dear leader will lose his seat. The sweetest victory of all would be if Peter Credlin stood against him and prevailed. Could you please propose a strategy and perhaps a word in your ear to save us all from life behind our Iron Curtain? Thanks, Tony. Well, Dan, I certainly think that Peter Credlin would be wonderful at whatever she turns her hand to. She was a really outstanding political staffer. She was an integral part of the Abbott opposition and then the Abbott government as my chief of staff for six years. And I've got to say, I think she's now a compulsory and compulsive viewing uh, on Sky at six o'clock every weeknight. So we're talking about someone here who is awesomely talented, who is extraordinarily articulate, she's brave, and she's decent. Uh, so there's no doubt that she is already making a massive contribution uh, to our public life where she is at Sky. She's also, of course, got the column in The Australian, the column in the News Limited uh, Sunday Papers, would she be a great member of parliament? Of course she would be. Tony, thank you for those responses and thank you for the discussion today. I think that's been uh, very interesting and I'm looking forward to continuing our discussions over the next 
uh, couple of weeks. So thank you again, Tony, and looking forward to chatting next week. Good on you, Dan. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.